Hi, folks. Thank you for tuning in. If you're a new subscriber to the blog, welcome. Today, I'll be reading a few messages and answering questions that I've received since the Bigger Pockets podcast aired on Thanksgiving Day. It's episode 305, if you haven't had a chance to check it out. Uh, one of the hosts, David Green, told me that once the show aired, it would change my life. And I would say that he's not wrong because um, it's been almost a part-time job keeping up with emails and answering questions from listeners. Uh, but it's been great. I have no complaints. I love hearing from everyone on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter. Um, Brandon and David are so good at what they do, and I'm just grateful to have been a part of it. Uh, their producer, Mindy, is also excellent at what she does. And uh, when she and I were discussing my being on the show, I told her that I only hoped that I would add value to their listeners. And judging by the volume of messages that I've received, we accomplished that and more. So I am extremely grateful to you, the listeners. Um, I know that she's pleased. She uh, she sent me an email last week saying that episode 305 was killing it. So uh, thank you. And um, let me get to the messages here. I really thought this format would Give me an opportunity to be a little more thorough and scale my answers a bit more, reach a larger audience, and give others a chance to hear the Q&A. So, uh, first message from Harvey in Columbus, Ohio. Columbus, I assume, is the one that is the home of the Ohio State University. He says, Harvey says, just heard your podcast, man. Great stuff. We are similarly minded. I like Harvey, obviously. He says, uh, where did you play college ball? I played at the Nickel State University. Uh, go Colonels. <laughs> he says that I love seeing other baseball players find success and happiness post-career, even if he was a position player. <laughs> okay, so for those of you who don't know, there's, there's sort of a rivalry between position players and pitchers on a baseball team. So I was an outfielder. We position players hit and play the field. So we call pitchers non-athletes. <laughs> and they have their own derogatory names for us. Uh, I'll have to ask Harvey what those are, but <laughs> let me get into some longer messages that uh, I'll be answering here shortly. So, Mr. Menev in Bulgaria, I believe his first name, I don't want to mispronounce it, Egvini? I'm not sure. Uh, he says, on the topic of real estate, I'm fairly new to the real estate investing world. I'm looking for my first property, and I try to educate myself as much as I can and avoid as many mistakes as possible for that first big deal. One thing that I was kind of sure that you and the show in general will talk about, but I don't really see any investor talking about, is economic cycles. You did mention the times when credit was easy to get, but it felt like a chance rather than a strategic move. I was almost sure that investing in real estate is based on cycles, and now I feel puzzled. In my country, Bulgaria, credit is cheap. Prices of property go up constantly, and everyone thinks it is a bubble, and most probably is. I wanted to ask you, what is your strategy toward economic cycles? How do you see them? How do you approach them and make them work for you? He says, I'll be really grateful if you can share more about it. For me, it is one of the things that is mostly scary, buying in the wrong moment. As those can be big questions, I understand that you might not have the time to answer right away. First, I would say, Thank you for your patience, um, Mr. Minev. He is a wise man because you definitely want to try to avoid as many things as possible for that first big deal. Um, it's definitely better to learn from the mistakes of others rather than your own. However, uh, mistakes sometimes are our best teachers. You know, they say that uh, pain isn't the only way to learn, but it's the surest way to never forget what you learned. Um, Many investors make their biggest mistakes on that first deal, and I would actually view breaking even on your first deal a win, a big win, <laughs> because so many people lose on that first deal, um, and the gains that come from what you learned on the first deal are going to stick. 
I mean, imagine you bought your first property in your 20s and you've got 30, 40, 50 years of compounding benefit from what you learned on that first deal. And what'd you have to pay for that? You know, like five, 10 grand at the most usually. I mean, you're, you want to start small, um, but taking action is the most important thing. And um, I mean, with regard to compounding benefits, that pertains to so many aspects of life, whether it's knowledge, relationships, money. If you think there are gains to be made long term, you've got to allow compounding to take root and be a little patient. So you're going to, with that first deal, you're going to get better at vetting deals. You're going to get better at vetting people. People, is that's how you build your network. So you'll figure out who's competent, who's on time, who you want to establish relationships with that are going to benefit you long term. So number one thing on that first deal is taking action. Um, he says, you mentioned when credit was easy to get, but it felt like a chance rather than a strategic move. I'm assuming he's referring to my first property. Um, if so, it was a chance. I mean, if you want to call it that, I had to buy a place to live in and I couldn't afford it by myself. So I got a roommate. Uh, but then again, every investment that I've ever made could be considered a chance. I mean, you can study market conditions, you can study historical trends, but ultimately investing is, you know, it's about making decisions with limited information that that you have at that time. Um I mean, it's a lot of people don't realize that you've got to learn to separate decisions from outcomes. So there is a good book called Thinking in Bets. It was written by Annie Duke, who's a professional poker player. Poker players have to make decisions with limited information all the time. They have to think quickly. They're consolidating a lot of data, figuring out probabilities and statistics. Uh, but in that book, one of the things she talks about is separating decisions from outcomes. So she uses the example of the play call at the end of the Seahawks Patriots Super Bowl, which was played, I believe it was played on February 1st of 2015, so the 2014 season. Um, if you remember, the Seahawks quarterback, Russell Wilson, was he threw a pass on the one-yard line. <laughs> remember, they had second and one, second and goal from the one, and they had one of the best backs in the league in Marshawn Lynch in the backfield. Um, but Pete Carroll, the head coach, made the call to, to pass, and everyone thought it was a boneheaded move, a boneheaded call. Uh, but, I mean, in reality, so there were there is the rare person who thinks that it was a sound decision. It was a um, brilliant decision because an interception was an extremely unlikely outcome. That season, 2014, there were 66 pass attempts from the one-yard line. Guess how many were intercepted? If you said none, you were right. There was zero. So people hated the call because it didn't work, but it was only second down. They would have had two more shots at a touchdown. In fact, Pete Carroll afterwards illustrates the point well. He said that it was the worst outcome of a decision maybe ever. So that tells me that he gets it. It's, it's the rare person who is able to distinguish between decision and outcome. But if you want to make better decisions, you have to learn to separate the two. And I'm convinced that that ability alone will improve your life. Um, I have a good buddy who retired with a couple million dollars from a Fortune 500 company. And he doesn't know all that much about investing. So he and I were having lunch one day and I had told him that he should start diversifying and uh, what he needed to do was start selling large quantities of the stock. 
And he said he didn't want to do that because the stock had always gone up. Um, but eventually, I convinced him, and he took my advice, and he started selling it. A year later, the stock was up almost 30%. Maybe not 30, maybe 25, 20. But he thinks the decision to sell was a terrible decision. But it wasn't because it's not the prudent thing to do to have half of your wealth in one stock. Even if you're working there, and there are, there are occasions when it can be advantageous, let's say, to buy your company's stock. For example, um, they offer it at a big discount. You might want to pick some up. Uh, but it's, it's risky to have too much of your wealth in one stock. And once you leave a company, there really isn't a reason for you to be so heavily invested in one, in one stock. So the wise thing to do there is to diversify. You never want to put more than 10% of your wealth in something that's too risky. And owning too much of one stock qualifies as too risky. So the decision was sound. The outcome was not. I hope that makes sense. And if you want to get better at decision making, there are a few things you could do. I would start by keeping a journal. A journal will enable you to consider alternatives, probabilities, like the probabilities of potential outcomes. Um, when you put something on paper, it allows you to be more objective and less emotional. And just the act of brain dumping on the page, you're creating distance from yourself and the problem that you're considering. And just that will enable more objectivity just doing that. So that ability alone to be able to journal and reflect and consider options and alternatives, that's going to put your decision making on overdrive. Yeah, so start with a journal. If you want book recommendations, I would read Poor Charlie's Almanac. Charlie Munger is a scholar of decision making. And I would also recommend Annie Duke's book. It's called Thinking in Bets. She was actually a guest on Bigger Pockets a few episodes before me. So you can check her out. Uh, poker is such a microcosm for life because you're sitting with people from all walks of life. You're dealing with limited information at all times. You've got to make quick decisions. Um, there's a large component of luck involved. People are bluffing all the time and using little tactics of deception. You know, some people sit down with sunglasses on their face so that you can't read their pupils. Uh, and then maybe the, the toughest part about poker is that you, you can do everything right and still lose the hand. So a lot of times people will fool themselves into thinking that they're skillful and clever uh, when they win a big hand and don't realize how big a part that luck played. I mean, a lot of times the, the opponents of yours don't even reveal their cards. So how do you know how well you did? <laughs> and then people will lie all the time. I, I hear people say, hey, man, what'd you have? As if the guy's going to tell them the truth. <laughs> like, I always have a ready-made answer to that question. So, if you're ever sitting with a man overseas <laughs> and uh, you hear him say King-10 offsuit real confidently, um, that's me. I, I just tell them that's what I had. And they look at the cards and they look back at me and, you know, maybe I'll give them the duck face. <laughs> but uh, there's no such thing as stupid questions, right? Only, uh, anyway, I, I know <laughs> I, I kind of went off tangent on a tangent there, but I hope that's helpful as it pertains to investing and decision-making. And I discussed decision-making because it's so important. I mean, what are our lives if not the sum total of our thoughts and decisions? So, it's a crucial component of the good life, and um, I, I could do hours on that topic alone, but I would check that book out, um, Annie Duke. I would check out Poor Charlie's Almanac. And also, anything by John Van Newman. He is uh, the founder of Game Theory and also, Nassim Taleb wrote a book uh, called Anti-Fragile that's really good for decision-making. So, 
moving on. So back to my Bulgarian buddy. He um, he wanted to know about market cycles. I would say that there are many people who'd be glad to tell you what the markets are going to do six months from now and six years from now. But I would also tell you that anyone who speaks with certitude about what is going to happen in the future is a speculator at best and a charlatan at worst. I would actually steer clear of that person. Nobody knows what's going to happen in the future. Economists are wrong 60% of the time. So if smart people could predict the future, they probably wouldn't have time to share it with you. <laughs> That's my theory. Um, you know, they'd be too busy finding mispriced asset values and loading up on them to take the time to, to tell you and me, the little guy, what, what to do. So in my first ever blog post called Real Estate Investing for Financial Independence, I wrote, the key to timing the market is to develop simple systems and processes to produce desirable, successful, and repeatable outcomes. Why don't I mention market cycles? Because it could be that I'm not smart enough to predict market cycles. Um, but if you want somebody who can do that, I, with their permission, I'll send you their contact. I know plenty of them. But for my part, I couldn't even tell you where we are in a given market cycle. So that's how smart I am. Uh, reminds me, I had dinner with a buddy uh, recently who was buying crazy amounts of stock 18 months ago when the market was booming. And um, I asked him last time I saw him, hey, man, what are you what are you buying nowadays? And he said, well, I don't want to catch a falling knife, which sounds clever, right? Uh, you know, the market's starting to drop a little bit. Um, but the problem is you don't know when the knife is going to hit the floor. And what if the floor is made of rubber and the, the butt of the knife is rubber? And the, the knife hits and it bounces way up past its original dropping point, And then you've missed it all together. So on that, I would just say that you've got to be willing to grab the knife. There's always risk involved in making an investment. So you got to be willing to get cut a little bit and handle the emotional roller coaster that is the stock market and can be the real estate market. So detach yourself emotionally. As Warren Buffett would say, be greedy when others are fearful and fearful when others are greedy. So it's not timing the market, it's time in the market that's going to make you wealthy. So anyway, if you're worried, if you're young and you're worried about market cycles, don't. Focus on your strengths. Your strengths when you are a young person are going to be your youthful energy and your biggest fear should be squandering your youthful energy. I would worry about my integrity. I would get that in line because that's going to be table stakes. I would work on developing my communication skills. So I gave a talk last month to a room of about 100 young men, and I asked them, what did they think was people's biggest fear aside from death? And one of them raised their hand and said, face-to-face -face interaction. And <laughs> I was amused by that because I don't think that would have been an answer 15 or 20 years ago prior to the advent of social media. But the answer, he was, he was close. The answer is public speaking. So... If you can stand up in front of a room of 100 people and deliver a message that helps them to visualize solutions to their problems or possibilities in their life or things they hadn't yet considered, the person who can do that, who can get you to think in images and scenes that they've never before thought about, you know how valuable that person is to the marketplace? So I would work on my communication skills, get your habits in line. Um, figure out how to maximize your energy. That's diet. So eat for results and not taste. Figure out how much sleep you need. So that's probably closer to eight hours rather than six or seven. Um, 
Find a place to work where you can serve those around you, serve your fellow employee, serve the patient if you're in medical care, serve the customer if you're in business, your players if you're a coach. I could go on uh, because the day will come if you go to work on those things that you'll be given an opportunity to serve even more people. And what a blessing that is. The, the, the person I've just described, his or her income will always go up because those people are hard to find. And money will be a byproduct of self-development. Don't worry about the money and the cycles. That will come. Go to work on yourself. Have ambition for the work. Have ambition to serve people. And money will be the last of your worries. Let me go to the next one. Matt in Baton Rouge. I actually know Matt. He's a stud real estate guy down there. Um, he actually helped uh, a family member of mine a couple of times. And he's helped friend of mine, friends of mine with real estate deals. So... If you're in that part of the world and you need help with something, let me know and I can uh, shoot you his contact. There's a plug for my buddy. I, uh, he says, I watched the Bigger Pockets podcast. It was awesome. You mentioned a handful of books. I've read most of them, Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Richest Man in Babylon, and Shoe Dog. And I've put the others on my list. I'm a pretty avid reader, fiction and non. If you have a list of your top books that would be easy enough to shoot me, I'd appreciate it. Yeah, book recommendations. Let's see. So my last two blog posts were book recommendations. And the most recent one was um, about Robert Greene's books, Mastery and the 48 Laws of Power. So I just wrote a blog post about those two, and I've gotten good feedback on that post. So there are links to purchase the books on that post. In the previous post to that one, uh, book recommendations, I wrote about Poor Charlie's Almanac, which I've already mentioned. It's expensive, but it's worth it. Uh, Charlie is Warren Buffett's right-hand man. He's about 94 years old, and he's, he distills a lifetime of wisdom in a way that is easily digestible. In fact, he coined the term elementary worldly wisdom. So he's just an awesome student of life and human nature and decision-making. Other books, Seeking Wisdom by Peter Bevelin is really good. I enjoyed the Tim Ferriss books, Tools of Titans and Tribe of Mentors. Tools of Titans, if you listen to his podcast, he basically takes a transcription of the podcast, puts it in book form, and has sold millions of copies. So, um, it's still valuable to have it in writing, but there you can choose to listen or read, whichever you prefer. But basically, the book is just the podcast. So, with Tribe of Mentors, he sent a bunch of emails out to people, asked them to answer questions. They did. He put it in book format. So, he's basically exemplifying... Um, his first book, which was The 4-Hour Workweek, also a good read. Uh, another book I read recently was called Never Split the Difference, which is an excellent book on negotiating. It was written by Chris Voss. But uh, actually, my favorite book on negotiating is a bit esoteric. Um, it's called Negotiate This by Caring, but not that much. I know it's an older book. I read it when I was probably 24. And there was a nugget in there that I have used throughout my uh, business career and it's benefited me greatly. So I'll share that with you. He, he says that if you're ever at an impasse in a negotiation, you can always ask the person, well, what would you do if you were me? And when I have asked that question, it almost always yields good information. And, and then even in the worst case, if you learn nothing new, you can always say, boy, I, I wish you were me, right? And then you're just back to where you started. So that's something I learned from that book that's been really valuable to me. Um, another book is Blue Ocean Strategy, something that I read that's more of a marketing book, uh, but it's got fascinating stories. Um, it gives examples of companies like um, Cirque du Soleil, 
how they didn't compete with Barnum and Bailey. They kind of created what he would call, what the author would call a blue ocean. Um, another example he gives is Yellowtail Wine, which became the most imported wine in the U.S. in 2002. It's really come out of nowhere and dominated the wine space for a while. Uh, so I found that to be an interesting book. If you're in any type of professional selling, I would recommend the Challenger Sale. It'll help you get more meetings and close more deals. It certainly helped me do so. Uh, for me, it was like the Bible of sales. Once I was when I was selling enterprise software, I kept the book on my nightstand, and then I had a copy of it in my car as in CD format. So, um, yeah, I was a bit fanatical, but I wanted to close deals. So, coffee's for closers, and I like coffee. I've read all of Nassim Taleb's books, actually started reading him about 15 years ago before I knew who he was. He has a unique way of looking at the world. So Fooled by Randomness was that first one. He's also written The Black Swan and Skin in the Game. Uh, that's his most recent one. I believe the subtitle is Hidden Asymmetries in Daily Life. So it's really good. And it's probably as much a business book as it is just worldly wisdom. What I've done with Taleb's books is I will buy the physical book and also the audio version because I find, especially on airplanes, it helps me to stay focused and drown out some of the noise around me. And speaking of audiobooks, I will have an Audible banner. So I've got an arrangement with Amazon coming in the next few weeks, and they will have discount codes or free books, one of the two, I'm not sure which. So be on the lookout for that. Um, I highly recommend all of Taleb's books. Um, Sapiens is probably the most recommended book by any reader who's been on the internet. So I've noticed anybody who's famous, seems that seems to be their favorite, uh, favorite book. Um, I've read it. It's excellent. It's sort, of, it's sort of like Guns, Germs, and Steel, if you read that one, but it's a far better read. Um, but if you want, to, you want more books, I'm happy to do a part two and three, and we can talk. I can talk about books all day, too. So let me get to the next reader. His name is Austin in Oregon. He says, hi, Brad. I just started the Bigger Pockets podcast. Pretty blown away with your story. We're the same age. I went to LSU. I'm a few steps behind you on the investments. I really appreciate your message of reading and investing in yourself. I look forward to following your journey. I also read your blog post, I'm Blown Away. My time in Thibodeau, uh, which is uh, the small town that I grew up in, was spent in the powerhouse while attending high school. It was a halfway house for young men struggling with addiction. I was addicted to anger, and I can really relate to your post. It amazes me that you were able to figure it all out with the, without the same extreme intervention that I required, albeit you had yours and I had mine. I dropped out of the 11th grade and decided I had it all figured out. I ran with the wrong crowd, fueled by insecurity. My point is that I have parallels in my younger life with yours. Thank you for sharing your story. And that's pretty powerful. Um, I'm assuming that he means the blog post that I wrote about developing mental toughness by digging deep within. So I wrote a story about the struggles I went through as a kid and how it is intertwined with who I am today, how it shaped my mentality. Um, man, that's powerful. Thank you, Austin, for that note, man. I appreciate it. And I, I did get his permission to use his name, Austin Kingsley, uh, stud guy. I will come out and visit you sometime in Oregon. Um, so he goes on to say that he's currently buying, or he and his wife are currently buying their second home, uh, keeping their first as a rental, which is what I did. And um, he says, we're interested in possibly buying in other markets in the next year, pending this rental is something we enjoy. I look forward to reading more of your blog. If I can ever be helpful to you, whether you're in Oregon or otherwise, don't hesitate to reach out. Awesome. Um, I actually know the halfway house that Austin is talking about. I took swimming lessons down the street. It's on Jackson Street. Um, I used to pass it on the way to school every morning. So good to hear from you, Austin, man. I'm glad you're doing big things with your life, man. That's awesome. 
so cool to hear stories of guys that turn their life around from, I mean, the shackles of addiction. Man, anger is a terrible emotion to hold on to. I've seen it. Oh, it's poison. There's an old Buddhist saying that says that anger is like a, a grasping a hot coal with the intent of harming someone else. But it's you who ends up getting burned. Um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing there, but there's a lot of a lot of wisdom in ancient Buddhism. And let me say this about addiction, man, it can happen to anybody. And you know, what happens is the uh, the bonds of degradation are too light to be felt initially. And then eventually those bonds are too strong to be broken. So it almost happens without you realizing it. Um, and Charlie Munger actually talks about that in his book. He says that he's never met someone whose life was made worse by fear and avoidance of such a uh, deceptive pathway to destruction. And in fact, he wrote three things that guarantee misery for life. And um, he said that number one, his number one on his list was inge to ingest chemicals in an effort to alter your mood or perception. Uh, number two was envy. And number three was resentment. Andrew in the Bay Area. Hey, Brad, I heard you on Bigger Pockets and tried to add you on LinkedIn, but no luck. It wants me to upgrade. How can we get connected? I love your story and want to learn more. Thank you, Andrew. I haven't heard of anyone having trouble connecting uh, on LinkedIn. In fact, I've gotten several requests in the past few weeks. If someone knows why he might be prompted to upgrade just to connect, if you could let us know, maybe in the comments, that'd be helpful. Um, I should say, too, though, that I'm not very active on LinkedIn. I check it maybe once a week at most. Uh, but my blog is manoverseas.com, obviously. Uh, I check that every day. And if you want to, on the main page, there are social media icons. So I'm on Twitter and Instagram, where I am at man underscore overseas. Okay, let me do a couple of more. Heather Crawley, Reno, Nevada. I just listened to the Bigger Pockets podcast episode you were featured in, and it gave me so much confidence. I'm a baby agent. I assume that means uh, new. <laughs> at Keller Williams in Reno, Nevada, but from Houston. I've been struggling with comparing myself to others, and your words helped me so much. I really hope you go forward with writing a book. Going to read the ones you mentioned in the episode. Uh, we know that comparison is the thief of joy. And if you read my blog post titled Book Recommendations, one of the things that I mentioned was that most of us are phenomenally wealthy by historical standards. I mean, we live like kings did 200 years ago. So, well, you don't realize it because everyone around us is wealthy too. But concern over relative status is going to, you know, it's a recipe for disaster, recipe for misery. And comparing yourself to others is the fastest way to steal your joy. So don't do it. I think it's natural that we do it. I do it too. Um, but we happen to live in a time, and think about it. You can, you can hop in a tube basically and fly to anywhere in the world you want to go within 24 hours. It's amazing. What an amazing time to be alive. Um, and if you're like me, you get a window seat and you, you look out the window half the flight because it's just a beautiful world. Um, anyway, I have a theory that if, if we were given the opportunity to get in something that flies and shoot up over our city at 300 miles an hour, you'd probably pay just as much to do that as you would to fly to Alaska round trip or Barcelona round trip. So um, air travel is something that we take for granted, of course. I mean, how fast did we adapt to iPhones? Um, so airplanes are the same way. But we're just lucky to be alive, man. This is a great, great time to live. So even the cost of a plane ticket is, is cheap. I mean, when our parents were our age, and I'm 38, so my parents are in their 60s, 
air air travel was twice the cost of what it is now, and that's adjusted for inflation. So competition has brought the prices prices so low that airlines even have trouble making money. That's why that's why the seats get so cramped, and then they charge you fifty dollars for your bag because it weighs three pounds too much. And then you get on the plane, and the guy next to you weighs 65 pounds more than you, and it's obvious he didn't pack deodorant or a toothbrush. <laughs> uh, so his bag's three pounds lighter than yours, and he didn't have to pay the extra 50 bucks. So <laughs> maybe there are some, some things still to complain about, uh, but I digress. Let me see here. Uh, so to answer Heather's question, yeah. Um, I told her, since she works at Keller Williams, Gary Keller actually wrote some really good books. One of them is called The Millionaire Real Estate, uh, the Millionaire Real Estate Agent, and another one is called uh, the same title, but Investor, The Millionaire Real Estate Investor. Um, but yeah, it's only natural to compare ourselves to others. In fact, I was having uh, coffee with a buddy recently who I happen to know is worth between eh, four and five million dollars. And he's doing some really cool things with his life. And in the midst of our conversation, I said, man, you've got the life. And he said, no, one of my buddies, man, he, he's got the life. He just bought Kenny Chesney's house in Key West. <laughs> I'm like, what? So uh, anyway, the grass is greener in Florida, I guess. <laughs> As they say, if you want to be successful, work with those who are more successful than you. If you want to be happy hang out with those who are less successful than you. <laughs> but we should all strive to compare ourselves only to older versions of ourselves. So in my case, if, uh, if I ever get down or try to compare myself to others, I will just ask myself, are you better, than better off than 37-year-old Brad? And if the answer is yes, then I'm good. Ben in Houston, I heard your BP interview. Uh, I love how simple you made the process. Is the purchasing price to rent ratios still the same in Houston as compared to when you bought your homes? The short answer is no. Uh, they're not even close. Property values where I was buying have nearly doubled. But I will say this. When I was buying those properties for about seventy to 90000 I was sometimes paying the highest price in the neighborhood. And looking at sales going back a year or two at that time, some of those houses were actually selling for as low as fifty-five or sixty sixty thousand. So I share that because it wasn't easy to pull the trigger, knowing that there were people who owned homes down the street that had got that much of a better deal. And then when we put our houses up for lease, they're getting the same amount of money as I was, twelve hundred dollars, roughly. So you can't concern yourself with the fact that some nameless, faceless investor down the street is getting a much higher return on his money, right? It's your journey. It's your game. Don't worry about what other people are doing and what they're getting. It, it just doesn't matter. So I see it all the time where people can't buy something because another guy got a better deal than they did. And I'm here to tell you, so what? So I've told several people where I bought and why I bought there and why I think it's still a good deal. And if they want me to help them, I'm happy to. I can show them the property. We can write up the contracts. I'll go with them to closing and make sure everything is good. Uh, but you, invariably, what they'll tell me is that, eh, you know, it's a bit pricey now. I think I'll wait till prices normalize or, you know, something to that effect, you know, whatever that means. But um, yeah, if, it, if you buy a house for 120 and you know that somebody paid, 80, it's just tougher for you to pull the trigger, regardless of whether it was seven, eight, nine years ago. At least that's my experience. So just do it, man. Take action.
I see it all the time where people assume they know the proper value of an asset. But guys who can do that, guys like Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger, they have spent 10 hours a day reading for 40 or 50 years so that they can find mispriced asset values and then make big investments when they find them. And you might be one of those people for all I know, but my experience tells me you're probably not. I know I'm not. Um, it's like what Matthew Walker, the author and professor of neuroscience, says. He's a sleep expert. He says that many people think that they can thrive on much less than eight hours sleep without a reduction in proper functioning, but the percentage of the population that can live on six hours sleep without a reduction in thinking and functioning rounded to the nearest integer is zero, <laughs> zero percent. So it's like one in 10,000 that can do that, but we all think we can do it. Anyway, so I run into market timers all the time, and invariably what will happen, the man will tell me, I wish that I had bought five years ago. So it's not timing the market that's going to make you wealthy, it's time in the market. So save and invest automatically, let compounding work its magic, and let's do big things together. I don't have anything else for you today. Um, thank you for being here. I don't take it lightly that you've chosen to spend your time with me. I know that you could be doing anything in the world, so thank you. It means a lot to me. Um, if you enjoyed today's audio blog post, please let me know in the comments. If the feedback is positive, I'm happy to do a part two. Make sure you subscribe to the blog if you're not already. Please like us on Facebook. Also, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at man underscore overseas. Thank you, folks.